0: You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Welcome to Make Liberty Great Again. I'm Cam Harless, and this is your Red Pill of the Week. You are a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. You take the blue pill. The story ends... You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. All I'm offering is the truth. Nothing more.
1: My mother and I were in Kuwait on August 2nd for a peaceful summer holiday. My older sister had a baby on July 29th. And we wanted to spend some time in Kuwait with her. I only pray that none of my 10th grade classmates had a summer vacation like I did. I may have wished sometimes that I could be an adult. That I could grow up quickly. What I saw happen to the children of Kuwait and to my country has changed my life forever. It has changed the life of all Kuwaitis, young and old. We are children no more. My sister with my five-day-old nephew, traveled across the desert to safety. There was no milk available for the baby in Kuwait. They barely escaped when their car was stuck in the desert, desert sand, and help came from Saudi Arabia. I stayed behind and wanted to do something for my country. The second week after an invasion, I volunteered volunteered at the Al-Adan Hospital with 12 other women who wanted to help as well. I was the youngest volunteer. The other women were from 20 to 30 years old. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers coming to the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators, took the incubators, and left the children to die on the cold floor. It was horrifying. I could not help but think of my nephew, who, if born premature, might have died that day as well. After I left the hospital, some of my friends and I distributed flyers condemning the Iraqi invasion until we were warned we might be killed if the Iraqis saw us. The Iraqis have destroyed everything in Kuwait. They, they stripped the supermarkets of food, the pharmacies of medicine, the factories of medical supplies, ransacked their houses, and tortured neighbors and friends. I saw and talked to a friend of mine after his torture and release by the Iraqis. He is 22, but he looked as though he could have been an old man. The Iraqis dunked his head into a swimming pool until he almost drowned. They pulled out his fingernails and applied electric shock to sensitive private parts of his body. He was lucky to survive. If an Iraqi soldier is found dead in a neighborhood, they burned to the ground all the houses in, in the general vicinity and would not let firefighters come until, until the, only Ash and Rubble was left. The Iraqis were making fun of President Bush and verbally and physically abusing my family and me on our way out of Kuwait. We only did so because life in Kuwait became unbearable. They have forced us to hide, burn or destroy em, everything identifying our country and our government. I want to emphasize that Kuwait is our mother, and the are our father. We repeated, we repeated this on the roofs of our houses in Kuwait until the Iraqis began shooting at us. And we shall repeat it again. I am glad I am 15, old enough to remember Kuwait before Saddam Hussein destroyed it, and young enough to rebuild it. Thank you.
0: War is the health of the state. If you've spent any time in any anarchist or libertarian circles, You've certainly heard this phrase before. It was originally written by Randolph Bourne around 1914 at the beginning of World War I. It speaks of how the mindless power of the state thrives on war. There is much money to be made and much faux heroism to pass around when there's a big baddie on the other side of an ocean or a border to demonize and to kill. It's not always easy to inflame the masses' lust for war and destruction. It sometimes takes a violent attack on a U.S. base or on a civilian center to talk the American people into coming together to back the mass murder of innocents across the sea. Sometimes it takes something a little more creative than that. Sometimes it takes lies about weapons of mass destruction. Sometimes it takes blaming another country for an incident that never actually happened. Sometimes it takes the carefully calculated words of a 15-year-old girl in front of Congress. Today we're going to talk about how atrocity propaganda crafted by a PR firm helped the war party get into a war with Saddam Hussein the first time, in 1990. On October 10, 1990, a cute little Kuwaiti girl, using what was described as an assumed name, took the stand in front of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus, and in front of any American watching C-SPAN. Her testimony was brief. As you heard in the clip, she spoke of the horrors of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, She spoke of premature babies being thrown from incubators and left to die on the cold floors of the hospital. She spoke of torture and of the incredible inhumanity of Saddam Hussein's forces. Now don't get me wrong, Saddam Hussein was a real son of a bitch. He was not kind to the Kuwaiti people or certain sects of his own people. He was most certainly a horrible dictator, a dictator that did keep some of the more radical sects of Islam in check before he was eventually killed, But that's neither here nor there. April Glaspie, who was the U.S. ambassador to Iraq right before Hussein invaded Kuwait, had a conversation with the dictator. They discussed oil prices, the rebuilding of Iraq, and the troops amassed at the border of Kuwait. Glaspie asked what their intentions were due to the concerns of the United States. Hussein spoke of the current state of things, what they were willing to do in this situation, and how they were giving one more chance of negotiation with Kuwait, but that he wanted to have Kuwait be a part of Iraq, and that Iraq wouldn't accept death. He asked Glaspie about the U.S. opinion of this. She said, quote, We have no opinion on your Arab-Arab conflicts, such as your dispute with Kuwait. Secretary Baker has directed me to emphasize the instruction first given to Iraq in the 1960s that the Kuwait issue is not associated with America. Saddam allegedly smiled. Of course he did. He was just given an open door and, in fewer words, was told that the U.S. would do nothing if Iraq invaded Kuwait. If the CIA does anything, it topples foreign leaders and installs its own. The only problem with this strategy is that installed dictators rarely stay the course that the U.S. and the CIA had in mind for them. This was certainly true for Saddam Hussein. He was the U.S. and U.K.'s golden boy when he took over in Iraq, but he didn't stay the course. He went rogue and wouldn't do their bidding. He even committed the cardinal sin of wanting to raise oil prices. They had a bad boy who they wanted to get in line. But first they needed the support of Congress and the American people to make it happen. Naira was exactly what the warfare state needed to enter into the Persian Gulf War. Someone young. Someone cute enough to be listened to. Someone whose voice they could exploit to reach their goals. Their goal was to spill Persian blood. And that's just what Naira gave them. She gave them the story that they needed to start loading bullets and aiming bombs. The only problem was that none of it was true. On March 15, 1991, John Martin, an ABC reporter, reported that patients, including premature babies, did die when many of Kuwait's nurses and doctors stopped working or fled the country. And he discovered that Iraqi troops almost certainly had not stolen hospital incubators and left hundreds of Kuwaiti babies to die. The most heart-wrenching part of Naira's testimony, the mental image of Iraqi soldiers with guns tossing three- and four-pound infants on the floor and stealing their incubators, didn't happen. Doctors fled. Nurses left. And they didn't take the patients with them. Those that died were left alone to die as their caretakers fled. This was no small loss and no less of a tragedy. But it wasn't strong enough to be used as propaganda. It wasn't strong enough for those in Kuwait who wanted U.S. military backing. And it wasn't strong enough for the past leader of the CIA and then-president, George H.W. Bush. The Citizens for a Free Kuwait was a public relations committee set up by the Kuwaiti embassy, described by the Times News as a Washington, D.C.-based committee comprised of concerned Kuwaitis and Americans. Though the committee occupied embassy office space, they were supposed to work independently of the embassy. They wanted to utilize the U.S. military for their own political ends. In order to do this, they needed a PR firm. Enter Hill and Knowlton. In 1990, After being approached by a Kuwaiti expatriate in New York, Hill and Knowlton took on Citizens for a Free Kuwait. The objective of the national campaign was to raise awareness in the United States about the dangers posed by Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein to Kuwait. Hill and Knowlton conducted a $1 million study to determine the best way to win support for strong action. Hill and Knowlton had the Worthington Group conduct focus groups to determine the best strategy that would influence public opinion. The study found that an emphasis on atrocities, particularly the incubator story, was the most effective. Hill and Knowlton is estimated to have been given as much as twelve million dollars by the Kuwaitis for their public relations campaign. Now, they just needed a spokesperson to drive this point home. Luckily, they didn't have to look too hard. Naira, whose surname was not shared with the public, actually had a surname, Al Sabah. Naira al Sabah was the 15-year-old daughter to the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States, Saud Nasir al-Sabah. Now, it would seem to me that the President of the United States would know the different ambassadors that live in the U.S. and work with his administration in some way. You would think that George H.W. Bush would have someone that could look at that little girl and say, I know her, but that wasn't shared with the public. And, of course, Bush Sr. used this testimony to justify the U.S.'s entrance into the Persian Gulf War. War is the health of the state, and mass murder seems to be the cost of the U.S. government doing business in the Middle East. If you still believe that WMDs in Iraq were the real reason behind the second war in Iraq, or that Bush and company weren't aware of the lies they were spreading to get us into that war, take a look at this, and tell me that the feds aren't above creating and or using propaganda to get those bullets flying. There's your red pill. Don't take the whole bottle.